0: It's funny that you mentioned the Karen thing because I have a poem about me flipping my ever-loving shit on a fast food worker at a drive through And I, I've never thought I would be the person to do something like that. But grief can show up a lot of different ways. I realized when I was in the car and that happened, oh my God, I get it now. The video that we see of the girl who's losing her mind because they're out of chicken nuggets and is trying to pull the fast food worker through the window. And we see somebody like that and we think, wow, that lady needs help. And maybe she does, but what they don't see is the mountain of stuff that she is carrying. I felt so bad when it happened to me, but it was incredible because I was able to see that and realize, wow, you don't think that you can respond a certain way because maybe you never have before. But it could be that one thing and that one moment, anything can happen to where all of a sudden you're just not being your best self. And if it becomes a pattern, and then that you protect that pattern, right? And you glorify it as a means for like a survival pattern, right? And right. that easily transfers over to like, well, this is who I am now, and who mm-hmm. am I without this?
1: Welcome to the Living and Leading with Emotional Intelligence podcast by Emotional Intelligence Magazine. EIM Plus, as it's known for short, is a one-stop resource for anyone looking to learn more about emotional intelligence. In addition to articles, videos, and recommended books to help you develop and expand your EI, EIM Plus offers a platform for EI coaches and specialists so they can connect with individuals who are ready to take their life or business to the next level. Learn more by visiting EI magazinecom That's EI-Magazine.com. Or follow us on Instagram at the underscore EI underscore magazine. You can find these links and more in today's show notes. I am Brittany Nicole. I'm your host, and it is a pleasure to introduce today's guest, Shane Mayner. Shane is a creative coach, visual artist, live event painter, TEDx and keynote speaker, trauma-informed care instructor, Poetry mentor and national spoken word poet based in the Charlotte Metro region of North Carolina, where I am at. She is the founder of the National Poetry Month Summit, an online summit that connects and supports poets across the US, and the founder of Guria Poets, which I hope I pronounce correctly, which is a nonprofit art collection with branches in the US and the UK. With her work ranging from inspiration and motivation to personal topics, politics, and social justice issues, Shane has been featured at many shows and venues all across the U.S. while completing many outreach programs as an activist. She has been honored as a finalist for Poet Laureate of Charlotte, North Carolina in 2022 and was recently inducted in the North Carolina Poetry Society. Shane is currently the spoken word and arts teaching instructor for the Harvey B. Gaunt Center Henderson High School. The Arts Empowerment Project playing for others as well as center for faith in the arts visual artist in residence. Shane has three published poetry books and three full-length albums, as well as poems published in numerous anthologies. She is one of the few North Carolina Live Speed painters and ultimate painting finalist, with her work hanging in various locations in the Tri-City. Shane Maynard's work continues to inspire people to recognize their own power and potential, as well as unify her audience with the understanding that we are all a part of something bigger. You know, as amazing as Shane's bio is, I don't feel like it does justice to the work that she's doing. Because her work is not simply about being creative. It's not just creative expression. It is that in addition to healing past traumas, discovering yourself, helping other people to discover themselves through creativity, regardless of what that modality may be. It could be writing. It could be painting. It could be music. But her work, along with this episode, is far more than simply talking art. We are going to get Raw we're going to talk about some very deep topics. If you typically listen to this podcast with your kids in the car, I do not recommend listening to this episode at this moment. If you are someone who has struggled with mental health or trauma in your life and you are very sensitive to talk about suicidal thoughts, suicide attempts, this could be a trigger for you. But there is so much value to be had in this conversation with Shane and One of the main reasons why I don't have a script or I don't have set questions to ask guests is because I love to see where the natural flow of the conversation goes. When I heard Shane speak and I wanted to bring her on the podcast, I never envisioned that it would take the direction that it, it did. So when I start this podcast, my initial intent was very different than how it ended up. And I love that. It's beautiful. I feel like the universe guides us and takes us in the direction that we're meant to go. So I just went with the flow. You do not have to be an artist. You don't have to know anything about art or poetry or anything to find value in this episode. So without further ado, here is the wonderful and insightful and creative Shane Mayner. Shane, it is a pleasure to have you on the Living and Leading with Emotional Intelligence podcast. Um, before I ask you, To introduce yourself to our listeners. I just want to share a little bit about how I came to know you and why I wanted to have you on the podcast. So I was introduced to Creative Morning Charlotte by a close friend of mine, Mark Perez. And he said, you've got to come to this. And so I'm like, all right, I've been hearing about Creative Morning. So I'm going to go. And boy, was I glad that I did it. I've been missing out. I have really been missing out. But you were the speaker, you were the main speaker for that event that day and when i heard you speak you know some people speak because they're passionate some people speak to educate but the passion and the truth in the words that you were saying in your story just resonated with me on such a deep level so i just i was like i have to have her on and we'll get to what that story is in a little bit but i just wanted to share with the listeners of how i connected with you um Yeah. So before we get into your story, would you mind just introducing yourselves? Who is Shane?
0: Yes. Thank you so much. And um, I think it's beautiful to explain like how you make these connections because it's amazing when you just show up, you know, you just say yes and show up. (laughs) So my name is Shane Maynard and um, I do a lot of things, but the main thing that I do is I'm really, really dedicated to creating spaces for people to discover the power that they already have within them and um, figure out a way forward through whatever they've been through. Um, That's what really fuels me and drives me is just creating spaces for that magical self-discovery to happen. And I use art and poetry as a vehicle to create those spaces.
1: I love it. And you spoke about that in your speech and you were talking about, you know, awareness and overcoming that fear of what if, and just following your passion before you went full time into your business and became an artist and a poet, I mean, which you've always been, but now it's, this is your life's work. What were you doing prior to that? And how are you feeling in that prior
0: job? So I was a graphic designer for years. It's what I had my degree in. I went to college for it. And you know, at first, I was really on fire for it. And then I just got really burnt out. And my work environment wasn't the best. And things were happening in my life as well. So I just felt really suffocated and really just exhausted with um, working at a job that I didn't feel passionate about anymore. I didn't feel connected to. And I was still doing... Like art and poetry, and teaching these things um, as a way to uh, make these self discoveries and and heal past trauma and create a plan to move forward, but it was on the side it was either after work or you know on lunch breaks, and it just got to the point where I just felt like I couldn't live two different lives anymore, mm-hmm. and I had to had to make a bold decision to switch over and It's just so interesting how like you can start off in an area of your life where you totally can see this, like you see yourself doing it for the rest of your life. Right. And then you hit a point where you're like, wow, you know, you start questioning yourself like maybe I was wrong or maybe this isn't for me. But I think it's beautiful when we allow ourselves the ability to change and not have to feel guilt or shame for it. And be able to honor that that part of your life got you to where you are. And how can you take those tools into what you do moving forward instead of being like, oh, I took a wrong turn looking at it from the lens of, oh, wow, I gained all this knowledge so that I can make this new turn, you know? Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's so much that we could talk about in this conversation. And I think we're going to be able to get to all of it because the two things that stuck out to me about your speech was one, what you overcame, you're talking about past trauma. You were able to overcome all of that, but then also that shift of following your passion, right? So those are like the two main things that I want to talk about. Cause when we think of like emotional intelligence, it's overcoming that fear, it's overcoming the ego, it's overcoming that trauma and realizing that our worth is not defined by what we have done. We are worthy from the beginning, right? And I think we've been so conditioned by society to believe that we have to earn our value and earn our worth. And that if we go down a path of passion, it's unsafe, it's risky. It's almost seen as ignorant by many people. And selfish.
0: There's a yeah, lot of selfish, yeah. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of people who who still are operating under the mindset of like work has to be hard. You have to yes. suffer. You have to. It's not worth it if you're. It's it's like there's no value in it if there's no pain. Like no pain, no gain. Like that whole mindset of like everything has to be difficult. It has to be hard to be worth yeah. something, and that's still not true. And I think that maybe generations before us had to have that mindset, getting through the Great Depression and getting through these world wars and things like that. And I can understand where that mindset will come into play to kind of, um, you know, even view that struggle from a, a lens that where at least you can like push forward and own it and and own, own that pain. And it be a thing of pride, but mm-hmm. it, it doesn't serve us anymore, you know, mm-hmm. and it has psychological effects that like are passed down through family, you know,
1: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So speaking of passed down through family, are you comfortable of kind of taking it all the way back and just talking about, you know, childhood for you and the mindset, you know, going through school and the challenges that you face and how that set you up for how you perceived your future? Walk us through that process of just childhood, and then we'll kind of move through that um, to where you are today.
0: Absolutely. Um, it's something that I I feel very open about talking, uh, talking to people about because I feel like it's a story that that doesn't um, get a lot of attention. I, w- I was raised traveling. So we traveled from job site to job site because my father built glass factories. So and he came up from nothing. So he was a very big mountain man deep in the in the valleys of Chucky, Tennessee. And uh, my mom, she worked payroll for him uh, for a while before later on in her life. After he passed, she got her doctorate of nursing to put me through school and to survive herself as well. But we we would travel to job site to job site. So I grew up on the road and it was it was a lot because I would go to multiple schools in a year, I think because it was always a thing for me. Like even as a, a baby, we were doing that. So it was something I was comfortable with and I was used to having to constantly shift and adjust to different areas of the United States and even sometimes overseas. So that wasn't a big issue for me. The problem was that I was being raised around a lot of violence. So a lot of men who worked for my father were in biker gangs and I witnessed a lot of violence. There was... Um, Places that I shouldn't have been in that I was in as a child. So I saw a lot of fights break out. My father had to go to trial a few times, once for murder, and he got off on self-defense. And um, so I, I witnessed a lot of things like that. It's really interesting as an adult to go back and look at how like two things can exist at the same time. I was completely safe. And yet I wasn't. You know what I mean? Like, it's it's weird. But the, uh, the other thing that really affected me later on in life is because of the travel, it was hard for me to maintain relationships yeah. because I was so used to um, making really fast, deep connections with people and then leaving. And we would never know, like at least I didn't. Really know when we would leave, right? So I might be told, hey, in a week, we're going to leave. I might be told, hey, tomorrow, we're packing up and leaving. You know, so it was only like rare occasions where I knew, okay, we were going to be here for this amount of time. I had no problem with leaving and going on on my own and being like, okay, that was fun. On to the next thing. I'm excited to see where we go next. I would, I would always get excited when we were going somewhere new because I was just used to it. But then later on, I realized that no one else really operated that way. So I would, friends would think I would ghost them and I didn't care and I was being fake just because I would go off and do my own thing and not realizing, oh, maybe I should tell them that I'm leaving <laughs> like, or just consider that they are not viewing life from the same lens that I was viewing life. And then the violence also taught me violence as a language. Of course, when things got really rough in my teenage years, that was how I communicated was violence to myself and to others. That took a lot of unlearning as well. Those are two factors of trauma that really had, I had to learn how to navigate life and realize that it, the rules in which society works, right? Uh, Most societies are not the rules in which I was raised. So I had to kind of find my way through that and, and really untangle that, figure out what works for me. How do I renegotiate relationships? How do I put this wildness to good use and not uh, go down a path of self-sabotage or um, make bad decisions based on um, maybe things that I experienced or unprocessed trauma that I haven't got to yet. It was a, it was a lot to have to navigate and weave through, but It's another reason why I think it's so important to talk about, because one of the reasons I connect so much with some of my students is because they're constantly having to change locations. Violence is a huge part of their life. And some of the unspoken rules that also go on in gangs, even though it's not the same type of gang, it's still that mentality so I can kind of see where they're coming from in that area as well. And I'm glad for that experience because one, it makes for some hell, hell of stories. OK, some great poems came out of that. And it also allows me to kind of kind of connect with them on that level. So,
1: yeah, and I can relate in that way. You know, I was never, quote unquote, violent physically, but I was very violent emotionally and verbally Having experienced that, being that person that a lot of people label as crazy or a quote unquote Karen, I have more empathy and understanding for those people because I see myself in them and I see all the pain that they're going through that is leading them to react in the ways that they're reacting. And it's like a valve. It's like a pressure cooker. You can only hold in so much pain before it comes out. And if you don't know how to process that, if you, if you have no clue about emotional intelligence, self-regulation,
0: then you're just going to project that onto others. Absolutely. And it's funny that you mentioned the Karen thing because I have a poem about me flipping my ever-loving shit on a fast food worker at a drive through. And I I've never thought I would be the person to do something like that, but grief can show up a lot of different ways. And I I realized when I was in the car um, and that happened, I realized like, oh my God, I get it now. Like the video that we see of the girl who's like losing her mind because they're out of chicken nuggets, right? And she's like trying to pull like the fast food worker through the window. And we see somebody like that. And we think, wow, that lady like needs help. And maybe she does. Okay. Like maybe she does. But what they don't see is the mountain of stuff that she is carrying. And I just, and you know, I felt so bad when it happened to me, but it was incredible because I was able to like, see that and realize, wow, like, you don't think that you can respond a certain way because maybe you never have before, but it could be that one thing and that one moment and like anything can happen to where all of a sudden you're just not being your best self, right? And if it becomes a pattern and then that you protect that pattern, right? And you glorify it as a means for like a survival pattern. Right. right. When that that easily transfers over to like, well, this is who I am now and who Mm -hmm. am I without this? And that was one of the hardest things about me without the anger. I don't even know who that is. And like, that's scary. That could be terrifying to be like, this thing has defined me for so long. And I've used it as a sense of pride. If you feel weak. You feel naked. You feel, you know, small. You're vulnerable. Yeah. Yeah. Very vulnerable. And. And that's a really hard thing to do. But like, again, with like emotional intelligence and mindset, if you can see it as an opportunity of excitement and exploration and play and find your power in ways that are positive instead of self-destructive or even destructive to others, like that could be your new strength. And that could be, you know, the new way you define yourself. And I think the biggest thing is just granting ourselves permission to be able to change and redefine who we are.
1: Yeah. And that's scary. Yeah. Even giving that permission, because sometimes we don't even feel like it's permission that we're allowed to give ourselves. We feel like that validation, that permission needs to come from other people. I'm going to pause for just a moment. I know this is such a good episode, but I just want to share something with you. If you've listened to this podcast long enough, you've heard me mention Combo Shop Fellowship, which is a group coaching program that I run. It honestly took me a while to figure out exactly who this program is for. For the longest time, I'm like, this is for anybody who feels stuck. But what I've come to realize is that, yes, there's a lot of us who feel stuck. There's not a lot of people who are willing to do the work to get unstuck. If you are someone who knows what you want and is willing to do whatever it takes to get there, then this program is for you. It's for people who are successful, quote unquote, in their jobs, careers, they're doing well in life, but they've hit a point where they realize that there is a major gap from where they are to where they want to be. They're at a point in their life, maybe this is you. You've done all the things that society told you you needed to do to be successful and happy. And while you may have that material success, you realize that it did not lead you to happiness. You're not fulfilled. You're not connected. You don't know how to build those strong relationships, maybe with yourself, maybe with other people. You don't have energy. You're nearing the peak of burnout. And you realize that this life that society told you was so grand is really not all that it's cracked up to be. And you also know that there is more. But how do you achieve that? What do you need to do? What I help you do through this program, and I actually mentioned this in our last group session together, is it's like turning the light on in a dark room. What I'm gonna help you do is instead of you filling your way through the darkness, trying to discover things, which takes a lot more time and energy on your part, I'm gonna help you find that light switch. And we're gonna turn that light switch on to illuminate and bring clarity to what it is that's holding you back from who you know that you can be and who you want to be, and what you want to get out of life. If that resonates with you, then I hope to see you at this upcoming month session. Because what are you waiting for? You know that you need to take action to get to where you want to go because you've been doing it. You've been doing it your whole life and your career. Now it is time for you to focus on you and your needs. You've already mastered one part of life, the outer world. Now it's time to master the inner world. This is a month-to-month program, which means you do not have to pay a long-term contract. You are not locked into three-plus months paying thousands of dollars. There is a very small investment, and yes, it is an investment because I guarantee you that every session, you will get your money's worth. Right now, we are still running the offer for $75 a month, which is half off. It's normally $150. Just make sure when you go to checkout, you put in the promo code FIRST20, and you can find this in the show notes so that you do receive that half off. You can learn more at ei-magazine.com slash fellowship. Again, that's in the show notes. I am not going to take up any more of your time because
0: this episode is too good for that. So now back to the show. Yeah. Right. And closure too. Like I was, yeah. I was talking to someone this past week about closure and I, um, we were talking about past abusive relationships and I was like, I'm not somebody who feels like they need closure whatever I need to work out with, like in myself, then I'll work that out. I do believe in cleaning up your side of the street. However, I do believe in that, but I've, there's this thing about closure that also feels like it's tied to permission. Like you can't move on unless you have, like, you need to let me know why you broke up with me or you need to t- like, all those things feel very much like you are giving your power over to someone else. Yeah. 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 You know? But I was just having a conversation about that. And it's funny how all those things can tie into granting permission. And sometimes we might not even feel like we're worthy of, of that permission, you know, like on a subconscious level. I'm just going to be
1: honest right now because people listening, you know, I get emails sometimes about how people see themselves in my story and they want to get to the place that I'm at. But I have to be honest there's times where all of that comes flooding back. And it's been a very, very, very long time since that's happened. I don't want anybody listening to think I've got it figured out. That's the last thing that I want people to think, because if they have that mindset that, oh, once you reach this level, life is good. And I will say that 90% of my life is amazing, but there's that 10% that kind of creeps in there. And this past week, was a brutal week for me. Um, not because of the holidays, like the holidays were great, but I started a TikTok channel and it was all about mindfulness, emotional intelligence, everything that I talk about on this podcast, but sound bites and comments that I would get. Just people that are miserable and just blatantly saying you're wrong da, 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 da. And the ego in me saying, I'm not wrong. Like you're telling how what I'm not wrong. I, I study this stuff. And all of those insecurities that I thought I had addressed that I thought I had taken care of started to find their way to the surface. And I started to have self doubt and question myself. And there was rage and anger and it turned into I wouldn't even call depression. I was so rageful that I was like crying. Like my rage can turn into tears if it gets so bad. And I was just in a really, really, really bad headspace this past week. And I cried for like three, ugly cried for three straight hours the other day, knowing that it was my ego, knowing that it was past trauma that was resurfacing and trying to talk myself through it. But you know what? I sat there and I said, I am so grateful For this experience, because I haven't had a connection to that past self for a very, very long time. And when it comes to helping other people, sometimes I feel I'm so disconnected because everything makes so much sense when you get it. And so you forget that attachment to what it felt like to be helpless, what it felt like to feel like there was no hope. And so I'm so grateful that I had that experience last week because when I'm working with people, I'm more empathetic because I was disconnected from that.
0: That is a beautiful way to state it. I totally resonate with that because um, I'm getting ready to um, go into the adult detention facilities. And they specifically hired me as the contractor in Mecklenburg County. Because of my past, um, you know, being raised around this and dealing with um, men who helped raise me that went in and out of prison and things like that, and um, and just my own personal background, right, of just you know the violence and the mental health and things like that. Mm-hmm. And I was talking to somebody, and I was like, I'm afraid that I'm so like far beyond that and so disconnected from that. Like I remember, like it, there were moments that were too shady not to remember, right. But I'm afraid that like, what if I'm not right to go in there because I'm so far away from where I was then? And then I realized I was like, no, I'm in the I'm the perfect position to go in because um, because they need to see that they need to see somebody who's who's gone through this and found their way and that there is hope. I say all that to say that even though I believe that I'm so far removed from it, right, I feel like trauma is a spiral. And you never are going to wake up one day and just be like, oh, I'm a perfect human being now, right? right. Like, And I, I feel like these things, they keep coming up on different levels of the spiral. So mm-hmm. you can see a different viewpoint of it, right? You can see a different a different thing that you didn't see before. And you can make even further self-discoveries about yourself and how you connect to the world. Mm-hmm. And, and you get an opportunity to heal a, a little bit deeper, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I love the the reminder of hey this is this is something that is a purpose for you and like that's why it stings, you know?
1: Yeah.
0: And and it's a reminder of of how that feels. So you can be connected. I love that. I think that's beautiful. I um I do feel like these things they poke us. They're here to kind of nudge us forward, but I'm a dealing with negative comments it's so hard for anyone to like and especially if you have like anything tied to that, that maybe in childhood, like, you know, affected you in some certain way or even your teenagers. Right. Th- those things are so hard. That's why many YouTubers, they have that one episode on their YouTube channel where they're just crying in front of the camera, like y'all are mean. And I don't know if I can keep doing this. And a lot of people who are influencers have a a virtual assistant who goes through all their comments just so they don't have to, like, they don't have to look at it because it can really, if you're a pioneer, right. Or you're trying to bring to light certain things that, you know, aren't being seen as a serious industry really, you know, yet, even though it ought to be it can feel very much like an attack. Right. I'm not, not just you, but like the entire, the mission, the whole mission, (laughs) the entire mission. Right. Yeah. So I totally get that. And I've, I've had to deal with that as well. Um, and I think that it's for me personally, it's one of those things where like, I've got to find a formula that works for me of like, okay, when this happens and I can feel it getting to me, these are the things I'm going to do to process it and be able to move through it. Also, I mean that those feelings have to have somewhere to go too, you know? So yeah. sometimes yeah. you gotta do the, the ugly cry. And yeah, and
1: that's yeah. Okay. exactly. I have no shame about ugly crying, screaming, doing whatever you need. My motto is do no harm. That's either to yourself or to others. Releasing emotions doesn't have to be pretty, right? <laughs> it doesn't have to look like journaling. It doesn't have to look like going out in nature. Those are options and they're wonderful options that I love. But sometimes when the rage and the anger or the sadness or whatever you're feeling is so intense, sometimes you can't get enough clarity to be able to be at peace in nature, to be able to collect your thoughts in a journal or writing poetry or whatever the case may be. You just need an outlet right then and right there. And that is okay. Absolutely. So I want to ask you, you talked about there was challenges in your childhood. There was a lot of anger and rage and the way that you expressed things was through violence. What was the catalyst for you in high school? Like, what was the next step for you? How did you start to process these things? And when did you develop that awareness that art was the way you were processing? Was it conscious or did that come later on?
0: Um, So I was always drawing and writing from a very early age, like five, like, you know, uh, I, it's so wild because my very first poem was about werewolves and I thought I was just making like a like a fictional like poem about werewolves or whatever. And then older me went back and read it and was like, oh, my God, alcoholic family. Somebody could flip any second and turn from this person into something else. And I was like, oh, my God, little me. You're like, <laughs> that was deep. What? I was like, oh, my God. Like it, it blew my mind. But I wasn't consciously aware that's what I was doing. When I hit high school, however, I was very consciously aware of like, if I'm going to make it like alive, if I'm going to, cause I, I didn't think when you talk about like, you know, what future career do you, did you see yourself having? I literally did not think that I would be alive. Like I was like, there's no way I'm making it to 18. I'm suicidal. I'm violent. I'm just, I, I, I just am not okay. Right. I was like, there's no way I'm making it to 18. Uh, but I did. <clears throat> I did have the passion of wanting to help others, teens, even as a teenager, <clears throat> because nobody, nobody was helping me. I didn't feel like it. Right. They weren't asking me, hey, what do you need? They, it was more punishment based. I knew that I was not getting the help I needed. And whenever I did allow myself to be vulnerable and ask for help, it was shut down. Right. So now can I pause
1: for a second? Are you talking about? And this could be both. But are you talking about primarily the educators that you were dealing with or family or both? Or where did you feel like it was more punishment and less
0: support? Um, both, but definitely family. So my father had died um, suddenly and that just wrecked us. Right. My mom was grieving. I was grieving. I wasn't sleeping. Uh, I started ha- I started having like OCD intrusive thought. Which would have me um, stuck in these just hellacious cycles, like just awful. And I tried to talk to my mom once about it, and she was like, "Oh, there's nothing wrong with you. Just stop it." Things like that. And it's it's interesting because it was like I was supported, but I wasn't supported, right? Like all all growing up, like my mom and my dad really like supported my poetry, supported my art. But then when it comes to certain things like that, you know, it was like, oh, no, we don't want to admit something's wrong because we're dealing with our own stuff, you know? Right, right. Educated, we're honestly, what's wild about the education part is I was still making incredibly good grades. Like I was, I was making straight A's. I was, but I, I still don't, to this day, I don't know how I did it. I don't know if it's because I was staying up all night and I was just like, well, I might as well study and do the work, Right. I don't know if it was the mindset of if I do make it out, I need to be able to graduate and get the hell out of here. Right. Mm -hmm. Because I was dealing with paranoia didn't trust my family. And I just, I was like, I need to get out of here. I need to get out of this town. I need to get away from this. So I don't know if it was that, but the way the school treated me was twofold. They treated me as you're making our stats look good. So we're going to overlook some things Like I would get caught smoking cigarettes, um, the violence. They, you know, there was so many times that I should have been expelled and wasn't. Um, But they would bring me into the principal's office to do these check-ins. But it was check-ins that were like, we're concerned you're going to blow up the school. We're concerned that you're going to hurt like the other students in in a more severe way. And I remember them asking me like, do um, you know, do you want to harm yourself? And I remember sitting in that chair thinking, this is the stupidest like question ever, because I had scars all over my arms. I had like, you know, it was very clear. I had like cuts and my knuckles were swollen where I was getting into fights and things. I mean, I looked battered, you know, because I was battering myself and I was battering others. And I just remember sitting in that chair being like, this is ridiculous. Like, you know. Like, you know, and you're not so much concerned about that as you are like, you know, this thing escalating or whatever. And of course, I I was not going to do anything like that. Right. But it just felt so empty. Right. And and I couldn't trust like anybody who was asking me because every time I would say something, it was like, well, we're going to send you away. You know, we're going to we're going to send you away. So I, I never felt like I was in a space to, when it came to the educators, to ask for help. I got threats to be sent to juvie and be kicked out and things like that. But it was never like, hey, I don't even remember ever talking to the counselor. Like they never sent me to the counselor. They would send me to the nurse's office to like get cleaned up and things like that. But they wouldn't, they never sent me to go speak to the counselor. At all. So it was always the principal I was talking to, or that, I mean, that's literally it the principal or the assistant principal. Yeah, that's how that went. (laughs) Yeah,
1: the education system. And, and I mean, my first degree was early childhood education. I was a teacher for a very brief moment in time, never in the public schools, though. Um, But I went to speak at a high school, and the air was just so toxic the way that the principal and the counselors and the teachers were talking to the students, it wasn't, you know, they say they care and they make these jokes and stuff, but it was just so empty. That's all I can say. It was empty. There were words with no heart. Yeah, And I'm just like, this is the problem. Kids spend—it's like a job. They spend eight hours a day in school, mm-hmm. so the influence of the teachers are just as important as the influence of family. And Absolutely. the challenge is that a lot of teachers are traumatized as human beings. Right? It's not an it's not a career. Um, what am What am I trying to say? It's not a certain profession. It is just a people thing, right? We have people problems and trauma is a shared problem that we have because most of us have been raised with the same conditions. Some are more extreme, but most of them lack actual connection to what is being said and done. Yeah. Right?
0: Yeah. Absolutely. And um I there's also like so many teachers that are dealing with burnout, like yeah. being burnt out and always feel like if you're dealing with with that population, right? Like you, you need. It's time for you to leave. It's time for you to get out of that, or or go get the help and the support you need. And and sadly, you know, you're not. You're probably not going to get that support within the school system itself. But um, it it comes a point where you can actually do more damage than good because you're the way you treat those students does have a direct effect in, in the choices they make once they leave that school, and that's they're mm-hmm. at on the street or at home or wherever they're residing or even after high school for not to say that that can't be changed, but it can make the road a little bit more rocky unneedlessly. Uh, so definitely, definitely agree with that. After high school,
1: what did life look like after that? So you, you made it through You're your straight A student. What was next for you?
0: Uh, well, first I was shocked that I was, alive (laughs) I'm sure you know okay well didn't think I would make it this far um and I know that you had asked what was the catalyst well what's wild was when I was in high school I knew that like I was writing to save my life I was I wrote constantly um I was writing poets I was writing poems all the time I was painting all the time and it's still I still ended up having a moment where i went through with attempting suicide. And it wasn't until years later where I realized there was a component out of the art and the poetry that I was missing. And that was personal development. And when I, when I think about the catalyst, there's three things that really, really shifted me from where I was into who I am now. One was finding a safe space that meant later on, after high school and after a marriage, and we'll, we'll touch on that in a second, you know, a marriage that was awful. I ended up moving in with um, two friends of mine, Wesley and Jay. And it was the first space that I had been in where I actually felt safe. I didn't feel like anybody was going to attack me. I felt safe enough to allow my nervous system to calm down. And that was the moment I stopped being violent. I realized that that was a huge catalyst for me is allowing my body to, in my spirit and my brain to get in a space where i felt safe enough to actually like reevaluate and readjust and reprogram the way i operate the second catalyst was discovering personal development masten Kipp's claim your power book changed my life like being able to immerse myself in personal development tools and learning techniques like story versus fact and and things mm-hmm, that really mm-hmm. affect your mindset. That was huge for me. That was like the best therapy I could ever receive ever. Um, so I read so many books about that. And then finding, being in a relationship with my partner now, Daniel, and actually being able to know what, what unconditional love is and being able to allow myself to accept that and see what a healthy relationship actually looks like. So I graduate high school and Well
1: actually, can I pause? I'm going to interject because there's
0: yeah. some things that that you said that I want
1: to dive deeper in if you feel comfortable. Yeah, absolutely. Um do you feel comfortable talking about some of the thoughts like you you talked about being suicidal and the only reason that I want to discuss it if you feel comfortable is because I think so many people are struggling and you hear it all the time. People lose loved ones to suicide or people that they know they were like, I never saw it coming. They were such a giving person. They were such a kind person. They were always laughing when I saw them. Obviously, I want to label this podcast with trigger warnings and um, explicit content. I just want to talk about some of the thoughts that went through your mind. And do you feel like other people picked up on that? Or do you feel like you hit it really well? Like, what can people kind of look for if they feel like there's loved ones that may be struggling?
0: Oh, yeah, that's no, that's very important to talk about. So for me, I was very vocal about it through my poetry and in talking to friends. And typically, especially with teens, when there's suicidal ideation, it becomes a joke, right? And it becomes self-deprecating humor. And we like laugh about it, right? But the, the threat is very real. But I was very vocal about it, because I did not want to live. And I even glorified it to the point where like, it was something that I I just owned, you know, but I really, really just, it's so crazy to me to like, the beautiful part of it is going from having a mental state and an emotional state of, I do not want to be here at all. And just being so much in pain, so much in emotional and pain that it's affecting the physical, right? Like I would lay, I would lay on my bedroom floor And press my chest into the floor and just, and and my chest hurt so bad. I just remember it just being so, so bad. And at the time, like, I didn't know that that was a severe panic attack, right? Like, we never even heard the term panic attack when I was a teenager. But I mean, it was so painful in every waking moment. There's this beautiful quote. That goes, and I think it's in Jeff Johnson's book. Um, he is—he's a poet from Charlotte, and it says, uh, "Wanting wanting to die is like being in a burning building and jumping out the window. You don't want to jump, but you damn sure don't want to burn to death." Right?
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: When I had my what I call my like the the major suicide attempt, because there were several others that weren't as I don't I hate to say the word successful, but yeah, lack of a better word it's wild to me because there was no planning. It was just one of of those moments where I was so overwhelmed and I was in so much pain that I was just like, this has to stop now. It has to stop now. It's like, if you've ever had a toothache that just is so bad that you can't even think it just takes over your whole head. It takes over your whole body. And you're just like, Oh my God, anything to make it stop. Just anything to make it stop. That's how it felt. And I was in a bathroom At the time, and I had just got off the phone and I just saw the belt, grabbed it, put it around my neck and I just jumped and it hung on the on the back of the bathroom door. I didn't plan it. I didn't think about it. It was the very first thing I saw that was beside of me. And I just did it. And I feel like a lot of times people don't understand that they're, you know, they'll they'll ask you afterwards or something. And what ended up happening is my best friend Ray Ellen had Heard my feet convulsing against the door because I had already blacked out, and so I had locked the door. So she had to break the door down, and then she had to cut me down from from the back of the door. And then she, I woke up to her pounding on my chest and everything, and getting me to breathe. Um, but oftentimes people will say, "What were you thinking? How could you do this?" And they don't understand that there is no thinking, right? It's like oftentimes in in suicide attempts like that, you, you aren't thinking all, the only thing you can think is make it stop. Yeah. It's just this stop. And what's wild to me is I've talked to a lot of other friends about on, on the subject of, you know, uh, suicide ideation and suicide attempts. And there's been numerous, numerous accounts of people who will call the suicide help line, you know, the hotline and, the first thing they ask you is, do you have a plan? And if you say no, they say that, well, they can't really help you right now that you can get on a waiting list or something like that. And it's still to this day, like blows my mind that people are still operating under the assumption that like, this is you just planet. Plan. <laughs> right. Like this is, and in some cases, that is true. Yeah. But yeah. Telling you the backside of that, there was a time that I was, I was having suicide. Um, suicidal ideation and I was like okay I'm gonna put my will together listen if you want to not die try to get your affairs in order you will realize that you can't you can't go anywhere yet okay there's a, a lot to do huh there's a lot to do and all of a sudden you're like no I can't do this this year next year not the year after like I gotta I gotta stick around for a while you know um so the idea that it's like you, do you have a plan it, it just still to this day it This is the reason why it's so good to talk about these things, because we're still operating under these misconceptions, right? And people who do end up not getting the help they need, it's because we still have these operating systems in place that don't serve the whole. But yeah, that's, for me, that instance there, it wasn't like something that that I, I wasn't concerned with how my loved ones was was feeling because depression often will tell you that they're better off without you. Right. That's a narrative that happens, you know, in, in your brain, whenever you're going through that, it's just wild from going from that into now being so in love with life. Right. It's like such a beautiful contrast, which is not to say that I still don't have, you know, thoughts that happen, but I know what they are. And I'm like, I'm not going to fight against this. I'm going to be like, okay, say your piece. And then I'm going to ask my body, what do you need? You know, and I'm going to keep asking that until we figure out what do I need right now to feel better. Yeah. But it's really hard to get to that point if everyone's treating you like there's something wrong with you for feeling that way. So hopefully that makes sense. Or yeah,
1: helps. and and I hate that you had to go through that and for such a long period of time too. You know, it wasn't like a one off thing. You said this was a continuous thing for you growing up and how you felt. I also suffered from panic attacks and it is painful. And you do feel like you're dying in that moment. And you don't even know if you're going to make it out of that experience. When your friend, I believe you said your friend found you, Mm -hmm. how did you, after you kind of came to and had some time to really sit and think like, what were the thoughts afterwards? Like, what were the emotions and the feelings that you experienced?
0: That's another thing that a lot of people don't want to talk about because there's guilt in that, too. There's so many emotions. You think like, oh, you know, um, I don't know what people think. Let me stop assuming what people think. (laughs) I don't know what they think. But let me tell you what actually happens. You're first of all, you feel like you're like, God, I finally went through with it. and And now I'm here and now I don't think I'll ever be brave enough to do it again. Like that was my one thing out, right? So there's feelings of anger towards the person who saved you for a while. I don't feel that way anymore. but when it happened there for a few months, I, I was angry, I felt like, I, well, this is just another thing that you know, I'm, I'm I'm a failure, right? A shame because then everybody's gonna know about it, yeah, right? Everybody's gonna know about it. and especially as a teenager, you have to walk into a classroom with all those people who now know. Luckily, no one, no adult was told, but all my my peers knew. And so then what what happens? It becomes a joke. And then every time that joke is made, you're laughing at it. But internally, it's just the the backlash of it, right? There's all these other emotions that are not the emotion of relief. (laughs) Right. And then what happens later on in life after you deal with that is it haunts you. I have this poem that talks about surviving a suicide attempt is like haunting yourself because then every little mistake that you make going forward, it's nope. Oh, they should have left me hanging there. Mm-hmm. They should have left me if if no one would have intervened. This wouldn't be a problem. Like I should have died when when it was back then, and like I somehow I've cheated death or whatever, and now I'm just gonna. It, yeah, it's just this really messed up mentality that happens for a while after that. And that's still that that voice, that narrative can, can still be heard even later on in life. And it's, you really, really have to pay attention to it because, and you have to acknowledge it's there because, you know, we see certain people, the thing that comes to mind is like bands that got us through our own like depression, right? Like Linkin Park, these bands like this, where like you, you see this person as someone who knows how to handle their depression and knows how to handle these things. And then they end up to where they're, they're no longer living. And you think, well, my God, is it, are we all going to end up there eventually anyway? You know? And it's like, you have to really, really work out that narrative and, and be aware of it and try to try to rewrite that narrative. So it doesn't come into play in your actions later on. And it's just another part of self awareness and emotional intelligence that you have to have, or else it can really cause you to sabotage a lot of stuff in your life. It's that subconscious conscious connection that we have to like join in the conversation of in our body as well, because it can creep up and it can it can really 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 be the difference between having a really shitty day and then just having an entire month where you're just in a mental spiral.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned earlier, you know, the difference between the story you tell yourself and the facts. And that is key. And it is extremely difficult to do because your ego can, it is powerful and it can convince you, no, this is the facts, even though it's the story. Yeah. So so explain that a little bit more, because some of the listeners may not know what we're talking about in regards to stories versus fact, but how do you personally differentiate? How do you know the difference when you're in your own head with a story versus the facts?
0: Yeah, so I love this is something I love talking about as well. Um, So I learned story versus fact in an organization that I'm an arts advisor for, and that's playing for others. And they teach a lot of personal development uh, tools to their teens and to their staff. And story versus fact is one of them. And so the example goes like this, you text your friend and they don't text you back, right? And it's been, let's say it's been two days. And the story you tell yourself is, they don't like me, they're mad at me, they're not my real friend, something's going on, they're talking about me behind my back. What did I do? I must've done something. These are all the stories that you're telling yourself because your brain is trying to fill in the missing information. But if you're able to just separate the missing information with just the fact of they haven't texted me back yet. Yeah. That's it. That's it. And you, you just take emotions out of it and you only list the facts. And the key is being aware of when you're telling the stories that's the key. And I use that tool every single week, every single week, we all do it, all of us do it. Mm -hmm. And our brains are wired that way. So we can try to figure out what's going on, right? That's just, that's our survival brain. That's our primitive brain, right? We're just trying to figure out what's going on. But if you can notice that you're doing those things, then you can stop it. And a perfect example of something that I, that happens to me often is I'll be out somewhere and maybe I'll look at someone and I'll smile and they just give me like this girl, what's wrong with you look or something like yeah, that. Yeah. And I'll, and back in the day, I'll, I, that would pain a little, that would hurt a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. I it a little, a little personally, right? But now I'm like, I don't know what's going on with that person. They could have a rock in their shoe. They might smell <laughs> something funny. There's like, no, there's no telling. I might have something on my face. I don't know. I might look wild. I don't know. But the that's the thing. I don't know. So I'll know when I'm like, I'll be aware that I'm making up a story to fill in the missing information, and I'll just be like, "Nope, that's not going to do that." I refuse to to go down that road, and I'm just going to move move on about my day. So, it's a really great simple tool that mm-hmm. I just think a lot of people are aware of. Yeah, it's a great
1: exercise. In fact, it was one that we had to do in one of my early childhood education classes. Anytime you're doing research, I mean, it's it's a research thing, right? You go in and you're an observer and you write down everything you observe. But I can't say like if a little kid hits another kid, I can't say they, this kid made this kid mad, therefore they hit them. Because I don't know if it made that kid mad. I can only say Johnny hit Bob, Bobby. That's Bob sounds like such an adult name, but <laughs> <laughs> but. You get you get what I'm saying. Like you only write what you actually see and what you know as undisputable fact.
0: Yes, absolutely. Right? You can change everything. Like just that little tool changes everything. Another favorite tool of mine is um, that I learned at playing for others is the inner judge. So we all have this voice that's like our inner judge, and it could be like Let's say you do something, you make a mistake and it's the inner voice is like, Oh, that was stupid. You're so stupid. So the tool is you separate the inner judge and you give it like a ridiculous name and you make it look ridiculous in your head, right? Like you design this whole character. And so that way, whenever it happens, you just say, shut up to that inner judge and it's like separated. It's not a part of you anymore. That's a really fun exercise to do. And that's also really fun to do with art as well to create your own inner judge character. I had a student once who. It created um, the, these legs and these butt cheeks, and the mouth would like talk through the butt cheeks, and she she loved it. She was like, "Oh my god, it's changed my life." Every single time I hear like the negative self talk and stuff like that, I just imagine it. Through, that's hilarious. Like, being spoken through the butt cheeks, and I just start laughing instead of going down a mental spiral and now I'm depressed and upset. You know, she'll just start laughing because it's just so ridiculous. So that's funny. Like, yeah. And and I've even done like a
1: third person. Um, whenever I am in a funk or being critical, I'll just say, Brittany's really struggling right now because yeah. I am more than my identity. And I know that. I know that I'm more than my ego. And when I am able to take a step back, it definitely helps. Since we're kind of running short on time, like let's kind of segue a little bit. You mentioned how writing and art was really your saving grace. And you went to college for um, graphic design, right? Yeah. And then you said, okay, I'm tired of doing this because I- I'm sure that it dampens your creative ability because when you're working with someone, they're telling you what things need to look like. There's, it probably takes a lot of that creativity out of it, right? Yeah. So what was that transition like for you? And I apologize to the listeners for this very quick segue, but um, I'll definitely provide you with Shane's information if she is open to that, if you want to connect with her afterwards. But I really want to get into your work now and, and really just showcase not only what you've overcome with childhood trauma and mental health but also for people who maybe are just stuck in a rut in their career and they feel like there's no alternative. They've went to school for this thing their whole life. They don't like what they do. They felt like they were forced into that career by maybe parents or society and they're lost. They have passions but they don't know how to make those passions a reality. And you said that it's so much easier than we like to think it is. So I would love for you to kind of share what that was like for you transitioning out into your own business.
0: Absolutely. So um, one of the things about the Creative Mornings talk was uh, also tying in how trauma could be the key that unlocks those things. So my mom had died. And I realized that at some point, I realized I have to start loving me the way my parents love me because they're no longer here to do it, right? Right. And that completely shifted the way I viewed my life choices and what I was doing with my life. And I knew I couldn't do it anymore. The environment was toxic. Uh, I was, it, it hurt too too much to keep going that way. And so I ended up quitting and I actually didn't really have any idea what I was going to do afterwards. And I freaked out a little bit, of course, like we all do. And then I realized, well, I'm freaking out because I haven't really been living yet why don't I just try, right? Why why do I think that I'm not worthy of this thing? If my parents love me that deeply to building this life for me, my mom building this life for me, even in her grief, right? Like they clearly thought that I'm I'm worth it. Why do I not think I'm worth it? And so, and then like people are contacting me to, you know, telling me like, Hey, you know, we like, your workshops we like your poetry we like your art like why why am I not telling myself that I just realized I had to get serious and if anybody's out there listening who is in a position like that where they're like I dread going into this job every day I'm in the parking lot crying before I go in I'm I'm sh- just a nervous wreck or I just feel so exhausted after I leave because it's not fueling me you've got to form a plan. Form a plan. You will feel so much better if you form a plan and you start educating yourself now. I signed up for so many online summits, business coaches, every ad I saw on Facebook that was like, oh, I made my six and eight figure business from the ground up. I was like, okay, yes, I'll sign up for your newsletter and get your info. And it helped me build my business. So like, being able to see those opportunities and take a chance on them. You don't have to give those people your money if you don't trust them yet, but you can at least learn from them and observe what they're doing and see how you can take Something from that to make moves to where you can afford their services, you know, when you get to that point, because oftentimes that's what those business coaches are actually doing. They want to get you to a point where you can pay for their services. And so that's why they do their free webinars. That's why they're giving away free content in their newsletters so that you can get to a point where not only you trust them, but you can afford them. And it's a great sales funnel that's not seedy. It actually works Uh So, yeah, like do that, like like, seriously educate yourself, buy business books, buy personal development books or download them, like read them, borrow them, ask your friends, hey, you got any books that really like affect your mindset, affect like, you know, taking back control over your life, just be hungry for it and don't be ashamed to work another crappy thing until you have to do what you have to do. But the biggest thing is get out of that environment because let me tell you this. There is no difference between working in a cubicle and flipping burgers if you're that dang depressed.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: One shitty job is another shitty job. There are tons out there. It is okay if you leave that one for another one just to get you out of that space, especially if you've been there for years. You've got to break the pattern, break it up find you something that's not as taxing so that you can build your business on the side. I actually Ubered for the first year and I didn't have to Uber at all after that, but I was also collecting poems to do for a poetry book from the people who were riding with me. So I would yeah. do that, you know, and I didn't have to do it a lot at all. I never drove at night. I took people to the airport and it was such a short amount of time. It's crazy. I got me a credit card and I said, look, I'm going to make enough money where I'm going to pay this thing off and I did, you know? And you, there's always a way, but you got to always. Yeah. You got a plan, but the biggest thing I would say is just get out of there. It does not matter if you go, like I said, it does not matter if you're pushing papers or flipping burgers, just get out of that environment so that you can make once one small act of bravery can completely shake it up for you. And and allow you to get momentum mm-hmm. forward. Mm-hmm. So if you're freaking out about the idea of like switching your job, right, or going into entrepreneurism, maybe you don't have to do a leap. Maybe you just do one small brave thing. That's all you gotta do. But for me, it was like I'm leaping, I'm getting mm-hmm. out of here. <laughs> and I did. And and I think oftentimes it's it comes down to your mindset. Are do you believe you are worthy of receiving all these resources and asking for what you're worth, right? You've got to believe that you're worthy of receiving that and that you're capable of it. And the second mindset is self-trust. You know, you know that you're not gonna allow yourself to starve because if you would have done that, you would be starving, but no, you are powering through because you know you're not gonna allow yourself to be, be in that situation. So trust yourself. You're going to do what you need to do to make it happen. Mm
1: -hmm. In a past workshop I did, I was speaking with someone and they kept saying, I have to do this. I can't not do this. I have to. And I said, but you don't have to. You are making the choice. We convince ourselves that we have to do this job because if we don't, then we're going to lose everything. And I just reminded them and a lot of people struggle to resonate with this. They think that I am very Pollyanna with this rose colored glasses, but it's Mm -hmm. true. We are the only species that pays to live on this planet. The only one we can survive without paying. There are so many natural resources. Like I live in the city. I live in Charlotte. I am six miles from downtown downtown but I have woods behind my house that have plenty of rabbits and squirrels. If I was starving, I would learn how to catch rabbits and squirrels. I would learn how to to harvest (laughs) dandelions and make a salad. Like the thing is, and, and I know that's not the case. Certain parts of the world, you need certain resources to be brought in, right? Like I'm fortunate to live at a place where there are rabbits and, you know, squirrels that I can catch. But the point is, Society, again, I keep going back to the system. It makes us feel like we have to be dependent on it. And that if we don't do certain certain things, then we'll have nothing and we will die and we will be miserable and starve. But like you said, that's like you will make ends meet if you have to make ends meet. And it may be hard. That's the way things typically are. When you're trying to go a different direction, things are going to get worse before they get better because you have to go into the darkness to find the light. You just it's part of the process. And once you accept that, which you have to accept, then it leads to progress. But that acceptance and acknowledgement
0: is key. And not only that, but like I there are a lot of things that I do not like about our country. Okay, there we got a lot of improvement. We got a lot of stuff that we need to work out. The one good thing that we do have is you can make a business ju- uh, with just dang near anything. Yeah. Uh, you know, going back to, um, you know, when I over for a little bit, there was a lady from Africa who got into my car and we were talking about the difference between like Africa and America. Mm-hmm. And she said, America is the only place where you could actually make a living washing people's dogs. Like nobody is gonna pay you to do that where I'm from. They would laugh you out of the village. Like no one is gonna do that. And like that I'm I tell poets this all the time too. Like you think that you have to be this spoken word performer, or you have to but you have all these books, and I'm like, there are so many other things that you could do with poetry. You could have like one sentence, you know, one one line stanzas and put that on merch. And never have to get on a stage at all. Like there's so many options out there to make money if you allow yourself to be open to those ideas. Yeah. And I mean, it's just oftentimes that people, I don't think people realize how much opportunity there is out there because they are conditioned to believe that, oh no, I can't do that on my own. I can't, I can't do that. Like people who do that, they... They, you know, got a phone call one day on the couch. Like people think that about the TED talk too. Oh, who put you on? Who hooked you up with the TED talk? I'm like, I hooked me up. I went to the website and applied. Like you're so, put. like, you know, um, it's just blows my mind how often we think that, oh, opportunity calls. It's like, no, you make the opportunity. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And it all
1: starts with believing whether you can or can't make that happen.
0: Exactly. Exactly. And that's really hard if you've been told your whole life that you're not worthy of that or you're not capable of that. So, again, that's why it's so, so vital to have that mindset and to really feed that within yourself that you are worthy of it. And no matter what you've done, you are worthy of health you're worthy of joy, of change, of defining who you are as a person, Mm -hmm. it does not matter what you've done. And I really, really stand by that. If I did not stand by that, I would not be going into these adult detention facilities, you know?
1: Shane, this has been a very deep conversation that needs to be had. And I'm so grateful that I met you and that you are so willing to open up and share this because who knows how many people are listening that you just changed their life that you just saved their life right and in the continuation the ripple effect that you're creating in this world um i don't want to put you on the spot because i didn't ask you this in advance but do you have a point that you would like to share
0: there's one called Giants that has a lot of like mythology in it that one of my friends, uh, Wits, he says it's his favorite. But unless you get like some of the mythology references, it's not you can kind of lose meaning. But it is about taking control of your life and everything. And you kind of do get that. So I can do that poem if you'd like. Sure. Awesome. Share away when you're ready. OK. If you want to sling rocks at Giants. Make sure there's a volcano in your sling, slung in an arc big enough to make the degree. Sing sign language to deaf angels. Wake the sky up so you can wake up before you grow gills and adapt to the pressure gauge you're being held in. Whatever that's towering over you with its gravel knuckles scraping your spine, crack your back up straight and heave your armor downward. You don't need it now. It will never be as courageous as the nerve endings of your own skin. You can take it. This, I promise. So split every stitched orifice, Orpheus. Your Dicey's death is in every lover's eye where the iris is the river that is running out of time. So you take her hand in the pupil's pulpit and bring us all back to life. There aren't strings strong enough to hold the notes. So you break them till it snaps the vocal cords in your throat. Bring the stone to mortar maché knees. Use it to build a kingdom with no king. If you want to sling rocks at giants, make sure there is a volcano in your sling. When they ask you about the molten mornings, tell them it is where you wake and sleep. Tell them you've only known cold except for when it burns and your insides carry the temperature of a thousand suns, the scale everyone likes to mention, but is never touched. So tell them to touch you, touch them, get really close to your own hands, write about them, spread them, use them like antennas, like eyes so you can find where the cold creeps in and fill every foreclosed house with light to bring the angels home to roost, rip off the roof of your fear. You don't need it now. Not here. You've already got all the answers to the questions you're afraid to ask and how they tower like giants with their chains at half-mast. Put them to rest. Bleed verses so tight you can slice the golden calves. If they are a monument of hard cash, you gotta be the diamond in the rough that never washes the dirt from its cuts. If you wanna sling rocks at giants, make sure there is a volcano in your sling, honey, sling fire and wake the sky up to sing. Wow.
1: That is beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Oh, it, is, it is an honor. Doing. It is an honor. Thank it you. An work you're doing. So thank you. So how can people find you? Um, I, I'm, I'm going to put all these links, of course, in the show notes, but where are the best places for them to find you?
0: Yeah. So you can go to my website. So com. You can also find me on Facebook. I have two Facebook pages, Shane Maynard, and then there's a Shane Maynard Creative Coach. If you want to see random poems that I write in the middle of the night, I would highly suggest you friend my personal page, just the Shane Maynard, and then I'll probably eventually send you an invite to the business page. But uh, I am on Instagram, but I typically use that for mainly business. So if you want like more in-depth of what's going on in my life and... Uh, if you want those those poetry doodles or what I call them, I would highly suggest you friend me on Facebook, and uh, you'll see all the business stuff on there anyway too, because I always share it. So
1: wonderful! Thank you so much.